Hey, it's Matt Bowles. If you want to hang out with me in person, I'm going to be at the Latino Travel Fest in Elizabeth, New Jersey, May 31st to June 2nd. And I've got a 15% discount for you to join me. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash Latino. That's L-A-T-I-N-O. There you're going to see your 15% discounted ticket. There are going to be multiple guests from The Maverick Show attending, so you'll be able to hang out with all of us in person. You do not need to be Latino in order to attend Everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode. A few of the founders I've backed are scrappy. I Sometimes I like them scrappy because they're just willing to fight for it and go for it. They, they're willing to take risk and not sit back and sort of, oh well, oh, well, that didn't work. And then with solo founders, sometimes I prefer solo founders if it's the right person, uh, because you can always get a strong team behind that founder. But if you have two founders that are eventually not going to get along, you've got a bigger problem on your hand. is The Maverick Show, where you'll meet today's most interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers, and learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey, everybody, it's Matt Bowles. Welcome to The Maverick Show. My guest today is Jennifer McGee. She is the founder and owner of Retail in the City, an architecture and design company based in New York City. Over the past 10 years, Jennifer has designed and planned over 10 million square feet of retail space for over 100 different clients, including widely recognized and acclaimed projects such as the duty-free shops at JFK Airport in New York City, Saks Off-Fifth Department Stores, Barnes & Noble Bookstores, The Sharper Image, and many others that you would definitely know. She has also designed millions of square footage of retail space outside the U.S. in countries ranging from Russia to China to the Caribbean island of Barbados. She has built her business so that she can run it from anywhere in the world with total location independence, and she has used that to travel to over 70 countries. She is also an angel investor and an advisor to startups. Now, if you missed the first conversation with Jennifer, that is episode number five of The Maverick Show. would encourage you definitely to check that one out. We went through a lot of her background story and her entrepreneurial journey. We're going to go into a whole bunch of other stuff on this episode as well. Since we initially met and recorded the first interview on the Remote Year program, we have subsequently had tons of travel adventures together around the world. And it's always a pleasure to welcome Jennifer back to the show. So good to have you back, Jennifer. Thank you for having me back, Matt. I am super excited for this. We need to set the scene here to start off. 
Uh, we have just opened a bottle of South African Pinotage, and that's very fitting because we are doing this interview live in person in Cape Town, South Africa. That's right. We've been here for about seven weeks together. You've been here longer than I, but we've overlapped here for about seven weeks. It's been amazing. Cape Town is always incredible. I lived here for about five weeks uh, back in 2015, so always good to be back. Finally got the Table Mountain hike in this time, and the super highlight of my trip is that uh, it was my birthday just last week, and you organized an amazing trip with our friends out to the Stellenbosch wine country, one of the most beautiful wine regions in the world. And it was a completely epic day. So thank you for organizing that. You are more than welcome. And uh, I've already been out there five or six times. So, <laughs> Well, I knew, <laughs> I knew who to go to when I wanted a wine tour or still advice. I knew exactly who to consult. So That's right. that was amazing. But do you want to talk a little bit about that and uh, you know what Stellenbosch is like just for people that haven't been there and, and how the day went? Well, uh, I think I took you to the two best vineyards out in Stellenbosch, one for lunch and the second for exclusive wine tasting. But Stellenbosch uh, is just absolutely beautiful wine country. I think it it puts Sonoma and Napa to to shame. It's just uh, there's over 100 different wineries out there. You can spend a few days, all day, a week, two weeks, and still not get to see them all and try them all. Uh, obviously, South Africa is known for its Pinotage, and uh, it's a beautiful wine that's a specific grape from this region. And uh, yeah, we got to go out, enjoy, and and you bought us, a, well, probably the, the most premier wine in all of Stellenbosch. That was a pretty amazing story how that came about as well. <laughs> well, we saw your negotiating skills in, uh, come into life with our... Uh, Friend Agatha. Yes, indeed. We should probably we should probably tell that story if you want to share exactly how that came about because we did end up buying. This was an amazing sales demonstration. I felt. I mean, I feel like we were a bunch of entrepreneurs that we all own businesses, we're all in sales, and I feel like we were all blown away by what happened, and we ended up buying the most expensive wine that was available. That's right. Well, Matt kind of set the stage, I believe, when he. Uh, kind of showed up to the winery and decided to uh, do the more high-end wine tasting. So Agatha was uh, basically there to walk us through. And uh, yeah, couldn't couldn't help but, I guess, I don't know, have a direct one-on-one with you, Matt, and convince you to... Uh, Take the high road. I was, yeah, because she came over and she was amazing, very unassuming, came over and basically gave us the menus for the wine tasting. There's basically two choices. And she goes, this is our iconic tasting. This is the high-end tasting. And this is the less expensive tasting. And I basically looked at her and I said, Agatha, first of all, it's my birthday. And second of all, we didn't come all the way to Stellenbosch to mess around. We're going to do the iconic tasting. Uh, sort of as a joke. And she just she just looked at me. She goes, okay. So she walks away in preparation for our tasting. And then without saying a word, she comes back and she puts a bottle in front of me on the table. And this is a bottle that's, you know, in a sort of case, right? And she just puts it there. And she goes, I heard that uh, you didn't come to Stellenbosch to mess around. So I thought you'd like to see the premier 
wine that we have at this vineyard. It's right there. I'll just leave it there for you to take a look at and walks away. It was one of the most beautiful sales moves that I have seen. She was humorous. She was slightly sarcastic, but she was also responding to me and playing on that. And all of us were there sitting around and everybody loved it when she did that, of course. And so then uh, I asked her how much it was and she told me. um, And of course, and then I, I checked it on Vivino, on the Vivino app to see what it was. And the vineyard price was actually about almost half price or at least a third cheaper than the store price, which would then, of course, be, you know, three times that in the restaurant. And uh, I was then able to uh, have sort of an ongoing negotiation with her as we were doing the tastings. And eventually um, I was able to negotiate about a 20 percent discount off that bottle. And so I felt that based on her uh, sales skills, and also the fact that I really did want to try the best wine in Stellenbosch. And it was my birthday, and I wanted to have all of us have that experience together. So we ended up getting it, and it was amazing. And she put it in this super elaborate decanter, and uh, it was a whole kind of show, and it was a super special day. So that was an awesome part of it. That's right. And the rest of the vineyard tours went uh, out the door. Amazing. And then, <laughs> and then we, well, yeah, that was, I mean, it was hard to top that. Although for the dinner was crazy. You took me to an incredible restaurant. We went to an incredible restaurant with our friends and it was about a six course preset chef tasting menu. And the chef actually came out and hung out with us. And he was Italian, but had moved and lived and really developed a lot of his culinary skills in Sao Paulo, Brazil, which was incredible because for those that don't know, Sao Paulo is one of the top culinary cities in the world. So by the way, is Cape Town, which is where he is now. I mean, you know, outside Cape Town and Stellenbosch, but this is as well. And so he's gone from Italy to Sao Paulo to Cape Town, and he did this amazing sort of fusion of Italian and Brazilian um, and other cuisines, which was just insane. So the whole day in terms of food and wine, one of the best days of all time, for sure. Hands down, yes. Yeah, <laughs> no doubt. Now, we have had, I mean, we're in Cape Town now, you know, we've been here for seven weeks or so, but since the last interview, we have had such a number of incredible adventures together. We were on remote year at the time, and shortly after the last interview, I feel like it was probably only a month or so after the last interview, you became a remote year legend. <laughs> you remember this. You became a remote year <laughs> legend, and I feel like we need to publicly share the story of how you became a remote year legend. This, this happened in Lisbon, Portugal, where we were for a month, and I'm going to let you tell the story. As I recall, you just went out to get a cup of coffee. It was something simple like that. Yeah, (laughs) I did. It was a Saturday. I do remember that. And just wanted to take some time in the morning and, you know, have my morning cup of coffee and, you know, sit outside. The weather was kind of nice and taking the scene and sort of figure out what I was going to do to the for the day and what I wanted uh, to see and where I wanted to go. And uh, I mean, before I knew it, I was uh, chasing two robbers down a, down through the streets of Portugal. One of them had basically come up from behind me, stolen the, you know, grabbed my phone right out of my hand and took off. And in a split second, I leaped over the table, uh, left everything, my purse, all my rest of my money behind and took off after them. There were two of them. And I rounded the first corner, uh, chasing them because, you know, this is what you do. And they were standing about halfway down the block. They were standing. The reason is nobody usually chases them. 
And they looked up at me and, and they kind of looked at each other. I'm running at this point towards them. And, you know, they had this kind of look. I felt like they shared this look like, oh, you mean we actually have to run? <laughs> and they, they started taking off. So anyway, long, long story short, chased them through the streets. There was a good Samaritan from the cafe that uh, gave some chase as well, but went the shorter route and cut us off at uh, the next intersection. One of them got away, but we caught the younger one, marched him back to the cafe, called the cops, police came, uh, you know, took a statement, all that stuff. Uh, they wanted to take me back in the cop car. I said, okay. So we're in the cop car. They, they're say, you know, they got to take me down to the police station and and uh, have me file a report and all of this. But of course, you know, the one that got away was the one that had my phone. So, you know, at this point, I'm disappointed after all of that. And you know, we're going back in the in the police car, and then something comes over their, uh, you know, their walkie talkies or whatever that system is, and uh, they just start laughing, burst out laughing, and I was like, okay, this is kind of weird, whatever, uh, sharing a joke. <laughs> and the one guy turns back to me and he's like, well, guess what? And I said, well, I don't know. <laughs> what? He's like, well, we caught the guy. We caught the robber. I said, you're kidding. And he said, and guess what else? I said, what? We have your phone. <laughs> I just lost it. <laughs> I just lost it. So we, we had a really good laugh. Uh, they had my phone for me when I got to the police station and uh, I think the lesson here is if you're a robber, do not wear a lime green sweater. It made him very easy to identify in the local town square. And uh, yeah, they went out looking for him, found him, phone was in his pocket, got the whole thing back. Well, the other lesson is uh, don't rob somebody from New York City. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> you posted that. You posted the story on your Facebook page, and all of your Facebook fans were like, New York City, what, what, what? That's how we do. <laughs> you yeah. rob somebody from New York, they're going to chase you, they're going to catch you, and they're going to get their phone back. We don't, we don't like having our phones taken. <laughs> we really don't. <laughs> so amazing. Remote Year was, was completely an incredible series of adventures. I mean, one of the other things that we did, which was one of the highlights of my year that you and I did together, was our side trip to Bolivia. Amazing. Which was, I feel like, and in part it was amazing because it was, I really didn't know what to expect exactly. And it's just one of those countries which especially if you're coming from the United States, I feel there's just so little information about it. It's not a high profile tourist destination. And I had never really talked to anybody that had been there or had done it. And, and I just didn't know what to expect. And we went for about eight nights with a group. And I mean, it was just like, my mind was blown. But what, what was, your, do you want to share a little bit about what we did in Bolivia and what your perception of it was? Well, Bolivia was just fascinating, I think, because we actually went to some of the cities as well. So we chose to go to La Paz, which is one of the highest altitude cities in the world, if not the highest. It is mind blowing. I mean, it is built in the mountains, on the mountains. You actually land at the airport higher up than you do in, you know, coming down into the actual city. So you actually take a cab down into the city from the airport, which is just kind of bizarre. And it's connected, all the different neighborhoods are connected by cable car. 
and altitude gets you. It is a tough city to kind of get used to. And walking around, you walk up one street and you're out of breath. So it's just, it was super fascinating. And then we went to Cochabamba, which is flat as a pancake, you know, and had this phenomenal street art scene. And we went around on bicycles. We had an architect, you know, that gave us a a phenomenal tour. And we just saw so much that day. But, But everything about that city was like complete opposite to La Paz. And then, of course, we did the Bolivian salt flats, which just is stunning. And it's like another planet. The landscape just changes. You, you know, you go out into this wilderness, basically away from all people out on your own. You're almost camping at night. But we stayed in these pseudo hotels that were built out of salt. And I don't know, it was just incredible. I really thought that we had gone to another world. And the landscape just changed so dramatically from one day to the next. I just, I mean, you never, yeah, you don't hear about Bolivia at all uh, back in the U.S. Um, Most of the people that we met were Europeans. And there is a visa fee for Americans that come in. So I think, you know, that's a bit of a deterrent for some. But it is worth the effort by all means. Just a beautiful, beautiful country. Yeah, it, it is my high. I think it is my highest recommendation in South America for people to do is to go to Bolivia, take a minimum of a week, and do all the stuff w- that we did. Which, in addition to those, the other day in Bolivia that was amazingly special for me, and one of my best days I think of the whole year was when we, our group, did a mountain bike trip down the world's most dangerous road. I mean, this was just, but for me, like, there was a lot of trepidation, I think, leading up to it for me because it has all this lore. It's called the world's most dangerous road. And it's, you know, a one car length wide road that has a thousand foot drop off and no guardrail. So, you know, fair. Um, and you know, but, but so there was a bit of trepidation because I'm not like a serious experienced regular mountain biker, but I had heard that this experience like a 60 kilometer downhill ride takes the whole day was truly a a real legitimate bucket list like once in a lifetime experience and so I really wanted to do it and I was just so blown away like it was such an emotionally moving day just in terms of like for me just like the whole experience and everything that we saw it was just I I mean I, I still think about that day. It was incredible. Yeah. The views and just the whole process of them taking us up to the top and then us working our way down. And yeah, it was it was incredible. And it is the most dangerous road because it does have the most deaths once upon a time when it was used as a way to basically cross the mountains. Cars would pass by each other and a lot of times they would end up, you know, pushing each other off. And so it was just considered, I mean, it was, in fact, that deadly. It was, but now they've created a bypass road for cars that are, you know, so mostly cars don't drive on it anymore. It's mostly just for mountain bikers and that kind of stuff. And of course, they've guided trips. You would go down with a professional guide. And by the way, (laughs) when you go down and you go with a professional guide, the mountain bikes they give you are like $5,000 Kona suspension mountain bikes. Like I've never been anywhere near a bike 
let alone ridden a bike that was of that caliber. Like it was quite extraordinary, but you know, the super professional guides and they take you, it's very safe. They take groups down every day. They've been doing it for 10 years. The company we were with, you know, seven days a week. I mean, they're super professional and it's quite safe as long as you, you know, go with a guide and take the precautions. Um, but it was just extraordinary. Like the scenery was insane. You start in the top where it's cold and you have all your gloves and hat and winter gear on. And then as you descend, it gets warmer. And by the time you're at the bottom, you're in shorts and you're in a rainforest. (laughs) And and you, and you saw like the most beautiful scenery you'll ever see on your way. That's, that's right. You have to peel the layers off. I tell you. So, so, so amazing. So, so that was, I mean, that was really a, a, a big highlight for me. We did a whole bunch of stuff too in South America. We went skiing in Bariloche and Lakes district. And we did, you know, I had all kinds of amazing adventures, but what was cool for me too about remote year was like the post remote year experience also like you're with the same group, right? So this is a professional work travel program where we had, you know, 40 plus people travel the world together for a year and remote year, the company takes care of accommodations and airfare and co-working space and everything. So those are working professionals that traveling the world and, and seeing the world and living as a community and working, you know, uh, and so forth. And we did that for a year. And then at the end, it was really sad. Like it was a very emotional departure for me to leave the group and not be with the same people that I was with every day for the last year. But the post remote year experience that they've developed has been quite, quite, quite incredible. Can you talk a little bit about what they call the citizen program? When you finish the remote year program as an alumni, they call you a a citizen of the remote nation and what that experience has been like for you. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, it's a real perk of the remote year program because, yeah, as a citizen, you basically have access, you know, to any of the cities in which they are based and you can, uh, you know, sign up for a month to stay with them, Um, especially if they have an active group in town. So you can do the full experience. You can do a part experience. Um, you can just sign up for, you know, some of the tours and that they're offering that month. It, it gives you a lot more flexibility once you become a citizen. So it's been great. You get to, you know, still feel like you're part of it, but you've got a little bit more control at that point of your own schedule. So I ended up here down in Cape Town because, you know, Remote Year has a, brings uh, programs through here. And so I was like, Cape Town, great. I'm going to go because Remote Year is there. And I met a lot of other citizens that were here and did a lot of activities and you know, a lot of people from our program have come down that I've been able to see. So it's a great hub. And Remote Year, you know, is also doing uh, piloting a lot of new programs and a lot of new destinations. So they're they're keeping the options fresh and they're kind of experimenting. And, and I think, uh, I mean, that's why you have the travel bug in the first place is to go new places and try new things. Yeah. And they're doing these citizen houses as well, which we, you and I both both participated in the one in Bonsko, Bulgaria in a ski chalet uh, during the ski season that they hosted there. And these are just sort of meetups for people that have finished the program who probably don't even know each other from all different programs can just come together as alumni and do cool stuff in cool places, which is great. And then there's just the informal part of it, which is just that we're part of this massive alumni network 
and we're all connected, you know, on Slack and any city in the world that we go to, we can just say, hey, anybody want to go here? I'm literally getting remote year citizens to come and meet me in West Africa, you know, uh, this summer. And I was like, hey, does anybody want to go to Accra in Ghana? And people are like, oh, yeah, let's go. I'll come down, you know. So it's like, I mean, it's it's really amazing. Like any place that you want to travel or, or thing that you want to do, there's, there's remote year citizens. And then, of course, we meet up with our friends and do epic stuff as well. Last summer, for example... We went, you and I, and uh, some of our other friends went to France, and we went through the French wine country. We did for about a month. It was which, terrible, <laughs> which was amazing. And I feel like we should talk about this too because we started off the France trip by going to the 30th anniversary of Dine en Blanc, which a lot of people have not even heard of. So for people that have never heard of it, can you describe what it is and then what that experience was like? Because that was really quite epic. It was crazy. I didn't know what to expect. I I had never been as well. And, and I can't even tell you where we found out about it. But basically, you uh, it's like a pop-up picnic. And, you know, you're not even told where to go. You just have to come in all white, dressed in all white from head to toe. Nicely, not in shorts and a t-shirt white, but, you know, almost cocktail dresses. And like you're going to a proper formal dinner party and you're supposed to bring a picnic. Ideally, you would bring wine and... You literally show up and they sort of assign you to these, basically like a program leader and an hour before you find out where to go. And then there's like a mad scramble to set up tables and chairs and get your picnic ready. And I don't know how many people descended, um, 20,000 or something showed up for the one in Paris. And then you you have to uh, take everything down and disappear and leave the place as you found it. So it's it's just an extraordinary exercise in planning. I, I, I just don't know even how they pulled this stuff off. It was insane. And they do it. They started it 30 years ago in Paris. It's now proliferated around and they do it in cities all over the world once a year and it's just it's insane right it's like a flash mob pop-up but everybody is wearing elegant white and and they're having a gourmet outdoor dinner party right so it's it's wine and champagne only no beer or hard liquor allowed and then the the picnic baskets we had a we had a picnic basket it was prepared by a Michelin star chef, and this was our picnic basket. And then we had like a bottle of Chateau Neuf de Pop and a bottle of Burgundy, and like this was our our, our dinner. We're dressed in this elegant white gear, and so is are the thousands of other people that have just popped up on this lawn to have an outdoor dinner party. And then four hours later, everything's broken down as if nobody had been there. I mean, it was absolutely amazing. Yeah, I, like I said, I don't know how how it even manifest. It's just crazy. It was crazy. So we did that. And then we went to the, we went to a wine festival in Bordeaux, which they have only once every two years, which was also, I thought, completely insane. I assumed that if it was a wine festival in Bordeaux, which is probably the world's most famous wine region, and they only do it once every two years, that it would be pretty crazy. But it was really beyond 
my expectations. Like, for example, like, oh yeah, there's a fireworks display tonight. So I go now every night. Actually. Now, yeah, every <laughs> night. Now I have seen some pretty epic fireworks display. I feel in my time. I mean, I've been to like Washington DC on July 4th and the, you know, and you see like whatever the, you know, this kind of like really what you think is pretty epic fireworks display. I've seen nothing like this fireworks display. And then I, I mean, I Googled it. I was like, what is going on here? Like, what is the deal? I mean, set to music. I mean, just like multi exponentially more elaborate than anything I'd ever seen. And it was done and put on by the company that is the preeminent fireworks company in the world that did the fireworks display at the London Olympics and like that caliber of stuff. So, it, you know, it was like that. And then they had all of the tall ships that were in the harbor and the fireworks were going on in the background and everybody was was drinking wine down the waterfront. And it was just, it was mind blowing, I thought. Oh, it was beautifully choreographed. I mean, just the music... Uh, I took it to a whole different level. I, I don't think I've ever been at a fireworks show with music like that. I mean, it was just stunning. I wish we had gone every night because they did it over multiple nights. Yeah, it was it was crazy. And then we went to the premier wine tasting event, which was where they had about 100 Grand Cru wineries descend uh, on Bordeaux from different appellations and brought two vintages each so there's literally 200 wines that you could taste which some people you know they give you i mean this is like a serious wine tasting right which is hilarious because we like like we roll in i don't know how they they let their riffraff in right but like <laughs> like like we roll in and we're just like oh there's like a whole bunch of great wine cool let's try this let's try that and but there's like people there they got like notebooks and they're like taking notes on each of the 200 wines and they're sitting, they're sipping it and they're spitting it in the spit buckets. I was going to say those spit buckets actually got used. <laughs> We're like, we've never seen anyone use a spit bucket. Why would you do that? Well, when you're tasting 200 different bottles of wine and you're taking notes on each one, you got to remember what it tastes like and what the difference is. I guess that's why you use it. But it was kind of hilarious because there was all of these like super professional like wine buyers and stuff like that, that were like sampling all the different, you know, wines from the, all these different Bordeaux area appellations and then like we just roll in we just like go into the different ones and try the different ones yeah we're like i'll take that one that one looks good try that maybe it was so amazing so the Bordeaux was amazing and then we went to burgundy which was really very different from bordeaux we went we we drove the route de grand cru which is the the really famous stretch of the most famous wine vineyards there in Côte de Bonne and Côte de Nuit. And I thought that was just insane. I mean, you're talking about an area of the world where you, first of all, you're talking about a completely medieval like villages, which are like, you know, thousands of year old wine cellars you're doing these tastings in. And, you know, it was just, it, it was really like tiny towns where there's maybe like 400 residents, but 40 wineries, you know, and it was just like, I just, it's literally the birthplace of the Pinot Noir grape, right? Like literally the origin of that. And it was just, it was crazy. I mean, I thought Burgundy was one of the most beautiful wine regions I'd ever seen. Absolutely stunning. Yeah. And we tried some phenomenal wines there so much so that I bought a case, Yeah, <laughs> which is pretty rare for me to do. I mean, 
So, uh, yeah, uh, I mean, they were just extraordinary. Really, we fell in love with with a lot of the wines there. And we have very similar palettes, I think, when it comes to wine. So we were usually pretty on sync, uh, in sync with what, what we liked. So. Yeah, it was amazing. It was just it was just totally crazy. So France, like that was the first time I had really gone to the wine regions in France, and it was totally amazing. And then we went out to Corsica, the island of Corsica, which is off the coast of France in the Mediterranean Sea. And that was a very interesting experience, especially the day that we decided to rent a car and drive around the rest of the island to see what that was all about. Because basically, if you're in Corsica, like the only way you can see the different parts of the island is if you rent a car. You have to do that to be mobile to outside of the, the major city where you're staying. And so we're like, you know what? Let's rent a car. And it was me and you and our, our friend Erica. And we're like, let's rent a car for the day and do it. And so we did it. And uh, that was a day that I think I'll never forget. Yeah, well, you know, you you, you learn that Google Maps is not always correct. Do you want to share uh, what it tells you as far as, you know, you've got got to question it a little bit each time. (laughs) We we rented a car on your credit card, but I was on there as a driver. So you're like, okay, I was driving and you were navigating. Correct. It and was a stick. I can't drive stick. It was a stick shift. And so I was driving. I was like, okay, I'll drive. I can drive stick shift. You navigate and tell me where to go. And we made a little bit of a wrong turn, which was probably my fault because we were probably talking. And I was like, oh, you know, I should pro- I think I should have turned left there, but I accidentally went straight. Do you want me to stop and reverse and, and turn around and, uh, you know, go back on that road? And you were I consulted the Google. And uh, the Google Maps said, well, this road continues around and it loops back into the main road that you want. So instead of like trying to do a U-turn right here with cars on both sides, you know, let's just go straight. It's only maybe a mile at the most, not not even half a mile is what it's showing. Um, But as we kind of came around the corner and kept going and kept going, that road got smaller and smaller and more narrow and the concrete disappeared and the dirt showed up and the potholes showed up and the branches showed up. I was basically like, you know, it, it basically got down to a, a one lane thing with which if we were to continue to go straight, we're on a dirt road and there were branches on either side uh, and there was there was going to be no possible way to turn the car around if we went further. And I was like, last chance, should we definitely do it? And you were just like, yeah, it says the main road is like right around the corner. I think if we just go a little bit further, we'll be there like no problem. And that's what the map said. So we go a little bit further and we turn around the right side and all of a sudden we are on the edge of a ravine and all of a sudden the road just goes straight down at about, I would say, definitely over a 45 degree angle. So we are all of a sudden descending straight down an insanely steep you know, barely one lane, less than one lane road with no rail on the left-hand side and a ravine that you fall off. So I am like <laughs> going as far to the right-hand side as I can, rubbing against all, this, all the branches to uh, try not to have us fall off the ravine. We're going down one of the steepest roads I have ever driven on. And all of a sudden at the bottom, I see this reservoir of water, which it's totally unclear how deep it is. And we are going at such a steep pace that we basically have two options. Either we slow down and try to go through it very slowly, which if it's deep is definitely going to get us stuck in the water or we punch it and try to plow through the water, which 
if it's super shallow and we're and it's that steep could like plow us right into the ground so i basically take a straw pole from the car and i'm like do we go slow or do we just accelerate and punch it to try to get through this water and and you guys were like punch it man so i just floored it we went straight down crashed into the water goes burning up left and right it was the right decision though because it was freaking deep and we would have gotten stuck finally get through the water did not fall off the ravine get back out of the flat road and finally make our way out of the highway uh but that was one of the craziest driving experiences that i have had in recent times for sure yeah and and it might be good to mention that it was just a little old fiat <laughs> yeah, little Fiat. This was not an off-roading vehicle uh, of any kind, but uh, well, yeah. we survived. Yep, we took the car back. They didn't charge us for any any uh, scratches that were there on the side of the car. Miraculously, that do not know how we got away with that, but apparently, it all worked out. So, it is a story that we have to tell on a podcast. Is what that is. That's right. These the, are the adventures that you have while traveling. These are the adventures. And then the culmination of that trip, though, was really, really awesome because after France, we went over to Barcelona. Mm-hmm. And one of my top memories with you particularly, um, and you and I do a lot of epic stuff together, and it's really cool when we do all this really super cool travel stuff. But one of the, my experiences that was particularly special because it was with you um, and you're an architect is when we went to Barcelona and we went to the Sagrada Familia together because it was like I was getting the uh, you know the audio tour of things and I was of course like amazed by what I was seeing but then like I had your sort of private personal architectural insights which made me just appreciate it at a much greater level and so maybe we can just start with just you know for people that don't even know what the Sagrada Familia is when I say that in Barcelona I've maybe never been to Barcelona can you just describe and explain kind of what it is whose project it is and why it is so architecturally extraordinary well it's uh I mean it's a cathedral that just you know, will blow your mind. It was uh, originally designed by um, Gaudí, who's obviously a famous uh, Spanish architect, uh, you know, some, what, 200 years ago now. And it was such a big undertaking to, to build this almost fantastical cathedral that they're still building it to this day. It is still a work in progress. And Gaudi was just so imaginative. I mean, this thing is like a sandcastle. It is just the way it was conceived is so complex. It broke all kinds of tradition with with what a cathedral should be and how it should be built. I mean, his arch systems and buttresses and and just everything about it is extraordinary. We kind of take it for granted. I mean, you walk in and you feel like you're in this 3D, like magical world um, that he's created. And it's just an extraordinary legacy that he he left. And so when we walk through it, I mean, the natural light that comes pouring through the stained glass windows, I mean, he conceived that exactly how that would be and, and designed those panels. I mean, he designed down to the infinite 
you know, little detail th- that you see. And of course, I mean, it's still being built, you know, I mean, way after his death. So he's never been able to realize, you know, this masterpiece. But it is, it's, it's extraordinary. And yeah, I mean, we had a blast kind of walking through there and exploring before they kicked us out finally. But an absolute gem of a place. And of course, there's, there's so many masterpieces by Gaudi in Barcelona that it's worth going and I want to take just one minute out to let you know that in addition to hosting The Maverick Show, I am also the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group, a real estate brokerage that helps you buy turnkey rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets from anywhere. So these are single family homes, sometimes two to four unit properties, and they're either brand new or fully renovated, and they already have tenants and local property management in place. So you get all the benefits of owning the deeded real estate, that physical house, the hard asset, without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I want to offer you a free consultation if that sounds interesting to you. To learn more about it, you can just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult. And now, back to the episode. Doing a whole tour, uh, just an architectural tour of his work in Barcelona. For sure it is. And the Sagrada Familia was like, I mean, that was his, you know, real true preeminent, you know, uh, piece. And it's just, it was mind blowing to me just to see it. I mean, anybody that walks inside this cathedral, this is so far different from any other cathedral that's ever been conceptualized or built on the planet of earth. It's just, it's so different that it's insane what you'll see there. But what you were explaining to me though was just it was just the next level like architectural insanity of like how difficult it was to actually build this so it's like the pillars you know that are holding up the you know and the inside of the cathedral are in the shape of like trees of a forest and they're do- i mean it's just like this stuff and you were explaining to me as we were looking at this how insanely complex and architecturally difficult this would be. And I think he said to me, like, if someone tried to do this today in 2019 with all of the advanced architectural software and technology and everything that we have, it would still be an insanely extraordinary masterpiece. When Gaudi did it, he did it in his head. In his head. (laughs) And and drew it like on flat pieces of paper. (laughs) And the thing is about it, it's just so three-dimensional. I mean, they couldn't even draw sections through it at the time. Like, there was just no way to communicate sort of what it is that he wanted to create. I mean, he's, he's almost like a sculptor. Like, the whole thing feels like it was sculpted by hand by this individual. And you're inside his sculpture. And you're just like, this is insane. It's crazy. Beautiful piece, though. I mean, it's a, it's, it, yeah. You got to spend a couple of hours there, uh, you know, when you go and go on a, on a bright, sunny day so that, you know, you really get the full effect of the light. But yeah, the whole thing was designed like the columns are like trees, like you said, and it creates a canopy on the ceiling. And I mean, every little thing was thought about. So. It's extraordinary. Yeah, totally, totally amazing. Well, let's use that as sort of an architectural transition. One of the other really cool things that has happened since the last interview is you got invited 
by the American Institute of Architects to be on a women in architecture panel in New York City. And I know that one of the things that the other architects are very interested in on that panel is how in the world you built your business and run your business and operate as an, an architect and an owner of an architecture company while you're traveling the world to all of these epic locations. But I would love for you to talk about, you know, that, that the experience on that panel and what it was like. Well, I'm, I'm still considered a novelty <laughs> for sure. It was a, a great experience. I had to cut our travels short that summer in order to go back to New York to be on this panel, but felt like it was worth, worth doing. And it was on a great panel with some other extraordinary women. All of us had our own practices. That was sort of the similarity uh, and the thing that tied us together. But we all presented basically, you know, how we ran our businesses, what kind of projects we did. And really, I just, I just spoke about working remotely and how to do it. And uh, as an architect, how to set up your practice that way. And I mean, yeah, tons of questions about, you know, what kind of communication software do you use for this? How do you project manage your team remotely? How do you work on different time zones? How do you deal with not being on site? Surely, you know, you have to show up and see what's happening. How do you find out, you know, how do you get your information otherwise? All of these kinds of things. So, I mean, in my industry, it's it's still pretty rare, I think, for an architectural firm or a design firm to set up the way that I have. So it was a great opportunity to share some ideas with others and have some conversations about how, how that could be done. And, you know, hopefully I can, can do uh, more of those kind of speaking engagements. And what were some of the answers do you think like that people were looking for and what were some of the concepts that you shared that would be valuable to, let's say, architectural entrepreneurs that are looking to do this? Well, I think uh, we just forget how much the value of the internet, really. I mean, Google Earth is a huge asset for us. I can go to most properties and, you know, look at it from an exterior, but also an interior point of view. Remember, I do a lot of retail. And so a lot of retail stores have been mapped. The interior have been mapped. Uh, and I can pull up the interior of that store as well as the exterior. So it's just, you know, I can see it. I can go into it. I can turn around in it. It's like, it's like being there. In fact, it's probably better than being there because I can reference it, you know, over and over again. You know, I'm trained to think spatially. So for me, just doing Google Earth and seeing it on a computer, I feel like I'm there. I, I, I can translate that. Other people cannot, but I find that very easy to do. And then tools like, like I think I had mentioned when I you know, was with you last time, box.com has been just our go-to collaboration platform. And so I shared a lot about how I set up a project on that and how I kind of manage, you know, that it's not something that was ever designed for architects. It's, it's designed for people in all different industries, but I've found that its system is great. You see previews, it's image-based, you can leave comments for your team. I mean, you can invite clients to it. I mean, I use it also similar to Dropbox and upload things and let clients come in, download files directly. Yeah. And then, you know, with the video conferencing software that's out there, whether it's GoToMeeting or JoinMe or Google Hangouts, I mean, there's 
so many. I mean, we can set up a call. You can see everybody's face. You know, you can talk about the issues. And, you know, our teams are spread out these days. So clients don't have time to meet you in person a lot of the times, you know, if because we do work across the U.S. It's not just in New York. So if they were going to meet with us, they'd have the expense of flying us out there, putting us up, entertaining us for two to three days, walking us through things. I mean, people are busy, you know, to be honest, it, it, it takes you know, an hour, two hours, maybe once every two weeks to touch base, you know, it, it saves a lot of time. So if you can convince a client that that's the way to go, it's, it's, it's ideal. Yeah. I think a lot of those lessons are very applicable to other industries as well. A lot of people, you know, it's really just about thinking creatively and strategically about how to build a remote infrastructure even if your business, like an architecture design company, is not in a space that is traditionally virtual, right? Like Maverick Investor Group is a real estate brokerage, right? People are like, how in the world would you build and run a real estate brokerage without being there on the ground? That's crazy. How is that possible? And people ask you the same question. How can you possibly run an architectural company without being there? And so, you know, I think and there's a lot of other industries, you know, for, for entrepreneurs that are in spaces and building businesses in areas that are not traditionally virtual, there are so many answers if you just reverse engineer your business plan and think strategically about and ask yourself the question, not if, not can I do it, but how can I do it? And then all of a sudden, there's a lot of answers, which is what people were able to ask you on the panel and you were able to tell them. That's right. That's right. And and I have crossed paths with a few you know others that have been doing it remote, but sort of within the larger sort of design and building industry. So I've, I've come across an urban designer. I've come across a landscape designer doing things remotely, cost estimator on the construction side, uh, people in the supply business um, that are doing sales. So, you know, there's, there's still a lot of opportunity. Sometimes you just have to find the right niche. Right. Yeah, 100%. But I think that a lot of the concepts that you're talking about are so relevant because we at Maverick Investor Group, we help our clients buy residential investment property as an investment. And we don't have to be ourselves on the ground, either where the property is or in person to meet with the clients. So we can build those client relationships over Skype and we have great relationships with our clients. And then we're also able to help the clients if they want to, they can even take a trip out to see the property, but we Maverick don't have to be there, right? There's teams on the ground and there's people that are doing that there. So it's all about how you as a business build your infrastructure so that you can take care of everything that needs to be taken care of, but you personally don't have to have a J graphic restriction in your life. Absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's about preference as well. I mean, we like to be the front end designers. We, we like to work with the client up front. We like to come up with the concept. Uh, we like to take it through what's called design development phase. And then we partner with local architects and engineers and MEP firms and whoever we might need to, to do that on the ground. Uh, I mean, there's plenty of firms that are local. (laughs) Right, right. For sure. For sure. So I also, the other thing I really want to talk to you about that we didn't get into at all on the last episode, and you and I have been talking about a lot since then, is your angel investing that you're doing. And I want to get into that a little bit. And maybe can you just start by talking about 
what is angel investing? What is an, an angel investor? And what are those sort of opportunities like just to set the context? Sure. So an angel investor, I mean, typically is an investor that comes in to fund a startup somewhere between the friends and family round, um, but before the VCs come in. So an angel investor is, is typically an individual, usually with either high net worth or with a certain income every year that is looking to make returns on their investment by backing different startups. And so that's that's really it. I mean, it's uh, it's a very simple term. It's kind of the word I think Angel came in as kind of like a lifesaver. <laughs> when you've run out of money, you've, you've run out of your family and uh, friends and they're tired of you asking for money. I mean, it's the person that comes in and saves you from that. Right. <laughs> More or less. Right. So. so, and just to give people context, how much would an Angel investment normally be or what would be kind of the range that like an angel investor would normally put into a startup at that super early stage? Honestly, completely varies. I mean, it can be as low as $5,000 all the way up to, I mean, quarter of a million, half a million. It just depends on that investor's net worth and what they're willing to do. And and if it's a full-time or a part-time job for them. I mean, this is something I've kind of dabbled with on the side. It's not my full-time job. I mean, I have a business to run myself, but there are kind of full-time angel investors that that that's all they do. They meet with different startups and, and founders and that's it. They, they literally are just constantly doing that and uh, investing their money and then getting those returns and reinvesting a lot. So that's a different ballgame. Yeah, for sure. So let me ask you this, just as a baseline question, because you are an entrepreneur and you founded and built and bootstrapped your own business. You did not seek outside investment money from angels or venture capitalists or anyone else, but you do invest yourself in other startups that are seeking angel investment money. So I guess the first question I want to ask you is, what types of businesses or when should a business or how should a startup founder or an entrepreneur think about whether they should bootstrap their business or whether they should seek investment money like from an angel? I mean, that, it's a hard question because I mean, businesses can fit into so many different categories. My very first startup, which I think I'd mentioned on the last podcast, which failed, was one that we went to seek funding for. So a lot of, you know, I went through sort of the fundraising process, friends and family, we got seed money before we failed. So I kind of understood how that that worked. And and our goal was to scale it. The current business, uh, you know, that I run today uh, is a service business. You'll never get funding beyond friends and family for that because it's not really scalable. It's it fits into a different category. So yeah, I, I, you have to evaluate what the company is. If it, if it has big exponential potential, angel investors are just typically the first ones you go to before moving on to, to VC level or institutional funding. You know, you can go after angel and then call it quits after that. If you're, if you're, if you get your business to profitability and perhaps you can't scale it much more than that, but you know, you can pitch angels with an idea. I mean, if you, if you think it's a good idea, you flushed it out. Some angels will put money into that. And then others, they want to see traction. 
So you're going to have to find your own way to get to a point where, you know, you build a product or, um, you know, that you can can actually sell and show that you have customers. And until you get to that point, those angels are not going to invest. So it varies widely across the spectrum. That's about all I can say. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so when you personally are evaluating a investment opportunity for deciding whether or not you're going to invest your money in a startup and be an angel investor in this company or not, what are you looking for personally? What are sort of your evaluative criteria that would green light and you for you to say, yep, I'm definitely investing in this company? Well, one, obviously I have to like the idea, but a lot of that has to do with, do I see value in the idea? Do I see that there's a market for the idea? Would I use the product? Does it make sense to me? Do I understand the product? If I don't understand it, I'm not going to invest in it. Um, and it has to relate to, to, to interest of mine. So a lot of the companies I invest in usually are somehow either tied to real estate or, you know, buildings, architecture, design, or they're related to retail or they might be related. I'm big into sustainability, so they might be green concepts. So they're somehow related to my personal interest. You know, I don't invest in things that are outside of that. Just doesn't make sense. I don't have any expertise in those kind of fields outside of that. And then it has to be a phenomenal team or person, you know, if it's a single founder. So I have to feel confident that that team and that founder are going to do everything they can to make this company work. And then I have to see that it has the potential to scale. It's not just a one-off or that they can only sell in a particular market. It's something that, you know, has the potential to catch on and, and really grow and expand. So, yeah, that's, that's my main criteria. Um, when you're at the early stage of investment, I mean, you can pour over numbers all you like, but I mean, it's too early. You, you really, a lot of it's, uh, you're going on your gut as to whether you think uh, the company has potential or not. And if you're willing, willing to invest, that's really all you have to go on. The numbers don't mean a lot. They're, they're, they're just forecasts. So, yeah. And so that, that's really it. And I, I'm not an active investor in that this is not my full-time job. So most, most of the time I do referral only. Um, you know, somebody has to refer a founding company to me or a startup to me for me to take a look. And a lot of times the referrals I get, you know, it's because it's an interest of mine. Right. That makes sense. Now, can you talk about, and this was interesting because you mentioned this to me the other day. I thought it was very interesting. You said that startups and startup founders might not necessarily take angel money from every investor. They're actually looking for certain characteristics of an investor to accept their money. And there might be investors that would, they wouldn't necessarily want that particular person involved with their company. Can you talk about what makes a good angel investor from the perspective of a founder? Yes. I, I mean, I've obviously I run a business. My wealth is generated from basically my business. So I understand what that means to run a business and to sort of generate your own income to play with. So some people inherit money and that are in the angel game. 
and didn't really ever work for it. And the number of angels I've even interacted with, I often am like, oh, wow, I wouldn't want them on my team. My goodness, they seem to be out of touch with the reality a bit. Okay. So yeah, I mean, founders have to be a little bit careful because there there is a sense with some angels that they're just doing it for, I mean, they just have so much money that they, you know, they're just out there kind of throwing it around and it's a bit of an ego trip and they have more questions for the founders, you know, and they bug them a lot and they want answers a lot. And, you know, they're just not adding value themselves. They're not helping the founder succeed. They're just kind of bothering them a lot. So anyway, founders do have to be a little bit, if, if, if you've also got an angel that really has a strong idea about where the company wants to go, and that's not in alignment with what, where the founder wants to take it. I mean, that's a red flag. You don't want to be fighting with a somebody that invested in your company. You want them 100% behind you. That's just a waste of a lot of time and effort. And then, you I mean, once you take their money, you take their money, they're in it, you know? And so you're going to have to deal with them for the long haul. So yeah, it's a risk too. If an entrepreneur takes on somebody that's, you know, not the right fit. So we always talk about that it's important to find the right fit. I mean, I know a company that walked away from a very big deal recently and is really, uh, it was a very hard decision, but they decided not to go with a particular investor and, you know, left 300K on the table in order to do that. That's a big, hard thing to walk away from when you're a founder and you need the money <laughs> and you just, but if you realize that, that that investor is not the right fit, there'll be a liability down the road. And when you're reciprocally, when you're looking at founders, can you talk about what you're looking for in terms of, and also in terms of solo founders versus founding teams and kind of what you like to see there? Yes. I mean, it, it does vary a little bit, but I mean, I just try to find mature people that have potentially, you know, have some very interesting work experience behind them. Um, have done some pretty significant things, even if it's not, you know, starting a company before. A few of the founders I've backed are scrappy. I, sometimes I like them scrappy because they're just willing to fight for it and go for it. They, they're willing to take risk and, you know, not sit back and sort of, oh, well, oh, well that didn't work. So, <laughs> and then with solo founders, sometimes I prefer solo founders if it's the right person. Uh, because you can always get a strong team behind that founder. But if you have two founders that are eventually not going to get along, you've got a bigger problem on your hand than a single founder. So single founder, the biggest risk there is that they run into burnout because they have nobody else that may be, you know, that they can turn to and bounce things off of and all of that good stuff. But they can drive. I mean, they have a vision. You know, a solo founder really often is very clear about where they need to go. So there's some benefit to that too. And a lot, yeah, most, I would say over 50% of the companies I've backed so far are solo founders. And can you talk a little bit about the advisory part? Because I know that a number of the companies you've backed, you're not officially anyways, an advisor, whereas some of the companies you are. Can you talk a little bit about the role of an advisor when you're coming on as an investor advisor in particular? Yeah, I mean, you have to assume that that you know you gave them money because they know what they're doing and they want to they know where they're going to go, and that they're they're going to hire the right people and all of this. So you're not coming in there to fix a company. You're not coming in to change direction for them. 
and tell them that they need to go somewhere else. You are really there to help guide them when they need guidance. And so as an advisor, you're really just, uh, you can be a sounding board for them if they need to be, you know, somebody to sound and bounce some ideas off of. But, um, you know, a lot of times a resource, if they, you know, they want a connection to somebody, they, you know, need to make a particular hire and they need a recommendation for that. Or, you know, I, like I said, I back a lot of companies in the space that I work in. So therefore, I can be a good resource for them for certain things. You know, I'm working with one of the startups to design their, I designed their first gym space in New York. And now we're doing one in DC and we're going to do two more this year. So in some case, I'm working with them very directly to help and guide them. And they've never done any kind of build out before. So I'm helping coach them, advise them, actually design their actual spaces. And so I'm a resource in a different way in 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 that case as well. So. As you have been an angel investor now for all these different types of companies, including in different industries and spaces, and you've gotten a view into the inner workings of these different startups, and some of them have been more successful than others. Some of them have been less successful. Some of them have run into more problems. Some of them have been able to navigate their way out of them and so forth. As you've been doing this, you've been getting such an insight into them, you know, not just to your own company and your own entrepreneurial experience, but all of these other different types of companies. What have been some of the observations that you've had and some of the lessons that you've taken away from these experiences just in terms of like, you know, what are some of the business challenges that founders and startups run up against and and what has kind of been the ways that maybe some of them have effectively navigated them and other ones have sort of succumbed to them? I think the biggest challenge for, for most founders is just the fundraising process itself. And, and the biggest mistake that founders make is not taking enough money when they're doing a round. So what happens is they close a round, they start spending that money and then they realize they need to start raising for the next round. They, you got to have enough runway to feel comfortable so that you can focus on the business before you have to go out again and start raising money. So yeah, a lot of founders try to kind of shortchange that, or maybe just don't they're always just worried, you know, oh, I don't, you know, I don't need that much money, right? I don't need that much. Why would I take more? But the problem with that is you kind of have to think big. You have to kind of, you know, make sure you take enough money that's going to basically double what you think you need. And yeah, you're going to have to give away more of the company for that, but it's going to buy you time and it's going to buy you less headache and you can, it'll give you more time to focus on what you need to be doing versus chasing money. So that's that's a really big one that all founders struggle with, I think, to different degrees. And some founders are just really not cut out for the fundraising process because it's, it can be a full-time job. So you've got to have a founder that's willing to do it, or at least if it's a two-founder team, one of them that has to become their full-time job. And then in addition to the fundraising piece, are there business sort of trajectories that some of these companies take that are able to make them more successfully in a quicker period of time than other companies? Like, are you noticing any, and maybe thematically or maybe just 
you know, specifically or individually, like challenges that are kind of holding some companies back, whereas others are able to kind of like move forward? I mean, other than financing, are there other business lessons that you've you've taken from this? Um, sure. I mean, some definitely spend money where they shouldn't. Some get very caught up with the branding. Oh, I want to hire a cool branding firm that'll do like, you know, cool graphics and make me look good. That's often not a good use of money until later, you know, throw something together. It, it's going to change, you know, until you get to a certain point, that's just kind of an exercise in futility. You know, you just don't want to spend a hundred K on crazy branding package <laughs> in your very early days. The other thing that I've seen, you know, they spend money badly on tech. So either that might be because they're not a tech company to start with, but tech is a component of any startup. You've got to have that. And maybe they choose to do stuff to custom. So they start pouring too much money into like hiring these developers that oversell them what they really need. Um, they don't have somebody in house or they don't have a, you know, basically a CTO that oversees that. There's a lot they get, they go sideways, you know, with the tech piece of, of the business, whatever that may be. And so that's a real challenge too, because they can, they can start over many a times. And I mean, and if, and if they are mainly a online business, they have to get that right because they'll lose customers. They won't be able to compete. I mean, and so a lot of it comes down to hiring the right talent and getting access to the right talent. And in order to get the right talent, you have to be able to pay them. And so that goes back to the whole fundraising thing. You have to have enough money to, in order to do that, et cetera, et cetera. So this is sort of the, uh, the challenges that, yeah, they often run into. What tips do you have or suggestions do you have based on your observations and experiences in terms of mitigating the phenomena of founder burnout? I feel like as entrepreneurs, I feel like all of us like run this crazy burnout risk where like it's just a grueling slog. And a lot of times it's just really grueling for a really long period of time. Um, and you alluded to founder burnout potential earlier. And so I just wonder if you have any insights or thoughts on like <laughs> I'm like being like self-aware and like preemptively having like mitigation strategies for like your own burnout like are there do you have thoughts on that <laughs> thoughts in your own burnout it is it is it happens more with solo founders for sure because they are carrying the full weight of the company on their shoulders in that case we we try to get or encourage them to get a team behind them as fast as possible. And usually a right-hand person because, and that right-hand person doesn't really need a label like CTO or C, you know, whatever they are. It's just somebody that supports the person in the key role and can start and trust them enough so that they can start to pass some of those responsibilities off. Those responsibilities may get passed off again, but it's just like, the founder needs to have a way to get rid of that stuff. Otherwise, it just circles back and they get snowed under with the pressure of having to manage everything. And then obviously, I mean, the more, the stronger the core team is, the better they do because then the founder can focus on what they need to be doing and, and they get the right people to take that responsibility off of them. I mean, for every company, it's different who they need, but yeah. And the best, honestly, the best founders are the ones that walk away at, at the end of the day and, and, you know, check out 
and go off and do different things and have a life. They take the company farther, faster, to be honest. That's really good advice. Awesome. All right. Jennifer, at this point, are you ready for the lightning round? Do I have a choice? (laughs) I'm ready. I'm ready. She's ready. Let's do it. The lightning round. Okay. What is one... uh, You've been to like over 70 countries now, which is more than me. Uh, What is one travel hack that you can share that you use when you travel? I book everything last minute. (laughs) I only book one-way flights. (laughs) I try to build a lot of flexibility into my travel. I don't know if that's, that's what you would call a hack or not. It's a style of travel. I will say that. You know, I don't like to to over plan my travel because I don't know if I'm going to like or dislike a place when I get there. So if I've committed to going somewhere for eight weeks and I get there and within the first two weeks, I'm like, well, it was great, but I'm kind of ready to move on. Then that kind of throws thing, you know, throws a lot of things off. So I find there's so many amazing last minute travel deals that it's almost easier to sort of plan and leave things a little bit to the last minute because like Airbnb starts dropping their prices a lot of times. If you're not going at at a prime season to a certain location, you know, you can get some amazing apartments. I mean, here in Cape Town, we're here off season. The apartments are like almost half the price. I mean, the place I'm staying next month, they offered 35% off the apartment for the month. Great. I'll take that, (laughs) you know, so I don't know. I just feel like there's some real advantages in in doing that. So that's that's my I don't know as a travel hack as much as a sense of style. Sense <laughs> of style. Well, I feel like it is because I feel like you do get a lot of last minute travel deals, and if you're willing to book last minute, a lot of times there are opportunities where if something hasn't sold, then they're willing to give you a deal on it. Everything from Airbnb apartment rentals to flights to you know all sorts of other things. So there are definitely last minute deals available if you're willing to travel that way. Yeah, and you can you can get the you can you know negotiate with an Airbnb host. You know, you reach out to them in advance, say, I'm looking at your property for these dates. Can you do me a better deal? Sometimes it will. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially if you're staying long term like you and you're saying, hey, I'll book it for a month. You know, what what kind of deal can you give me? Awesome. Next question. What is one tip that you have for staying fit while traveling? You are someone who uh, definitely is into fitness. And a lot of people ask this, you know, like I'm traveling around a lot. How do you stay fit while you're traveling? Well, pretty much the same way I stay fit while living in New York, which is you walk or you bike everywhere. So I'm a city dweller, city living. I mean, most locations that I pick to travel to are cities. And so to me, staying fit is a lot about just integrating it into your daily routine. It's not necessarily about, oh my God, I have to go find a gym. I need to join a gym. You know, I got to go to the gym, this, this kind of stuff. So you know, instead of taking an Uber walk, if it's 20 minute walk, so, you know, take a 20 minute walk. That's what I do when I'm in New York. I hate the subways really. And so if I don't have to go on the subway and, and cabs are way too expensive and I don't want to sit in traffic, well, you got you can walk or you can bike. And, and I think it's as simple as that. I mean, as they say, you know, 10 minutes of walking or exercise every day, you know, helps. It's just the little things and those kind of things add up. The other thing is, of course, you know, if I want more, 
I'll seek out dance classes in the different cities that I'm in. Um, you know, that's pretty easy to do a Google search for that. I love going to, to local dance classes. You, it's just amazing. You get so many different types of instructors and just a, a local, you know, flavor of, of where you are, a local sense of that. And then if I'm really in a pinch, I mean, Zumba videos on YouTube work <laughs> as a backup. I mean, you can always find stuff online. And, you know, if I'm in a pinch or something and I just I'm on the go, I can, you know, set up my iPad and, you know, you just stand in front of it and there you go. You got an exercise routine. So, yeah, you just have to. But I think in general, you just have to integrate it just, you know, more casually into everything that you do. Agreed. hundred percent. Awesome. Okay. Knowing everything that you know now and all the experiences you've had up to this point in your life, if you were able to go back in time and give one piece of advice to your 18-year-old self, what advice would you give to 18-year-old Jennifer? Uh, You're just going to have to learn some more patience. I mean, things just don't happen quickly. And I was always just, man, I couldn't, couldn't, didn't want to wait for anything. You know, things just had to happen right away, no matter no matter what, you know, um, I was just a fast thinker, fast doer, this and that. So, um, I would get frustrated a lot with, with things and give up, I think too early on things a lot of times and walk away from things. Cause I just, I didn't have, have the patience. So, I mean, I think as you get older and wiser, you learn that you've just, you have to, you know, give things breathing room sometimes, um, let things sort of soak, you know, come back to them. And, and yeah, patience, it's like, ugh. <laughs> still a challenge. I think patience is a really good piece of advice for all young people, for sure. If they want to try to establish and accomplish epic things, it's a very extended long-term process and patience is absolutely required. So that's a good piece of advice. All right. So on the last episode, I asked you your top bucket list travel destinations, and I think you've knocked them all out at this point. You were talking about the Galapagos Islands, which you and I actually did together, which was insanely epic. Well, we did it on a boat. We did. You know how I feel about boats. I do. You're very, you feel very favorably (laughs) (laughs) about boats, (laughs) about all things boats. And you've subsequently done a number of epic sailing trips through the Greek islands and all sorts of other legendary things that for many people would be bucket list items. And you've already done those things. And so my next lightning round question to you and my final, the final lightning round question is what are currently after everything that you've already done, you're now today in 2019 top three bucket list travel destinations where you have never been or things that you've never done before. Now, I feel like if if I give these the next time you talk to me, of course, I will have had to have done. Them. Of course, of course, you will have done. I, I know you're going to go do them in the next six to twelve months. Like that's a given. I'm just saying, what are they at the current moment? So we spent together with Remote Year uh, six months in South America. And I mean, we really worked our way down from Colombia all the way to Argentina, which was absolutely phenomenal. But one of the places that we did not go was Brazil. And of course, Brazil has been on my list for a very long time. And I keep thinking I'm going to get there. You've been there. You've invited me. Uh, Different people I know have gone. But for some reason, the timing's been off and all of this. So Brazil is just 
still up on my list and it still hasn't happened yet, but we're going to get there. So yeah. And you're over here nodding because I, you were just there coming off of, you know, the nomad cruise. And I know it's one of your favorite, countries. one of my favorite countries in the world. Be still my heart, Brazil. Yes. That's a great, amazing pick. Thank you. I knew you'd like that one, <laughs> but I'm excited about it as well. The second is, 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 I don't know why, but Nepal has been in my head for a little bit now and has been kind of gaining maybe a little bit more traction. I've not wanted to climb Everest, but I have been curious about going to like Everest base camp a little bit just to get a, a feel. I, I, I mean, there's a lot of craziness that goes with climbing Everest. And so I don't know. I was just kind of curious what these crazy climbers are like and what they, what they do. But, but I've just heard the mountains in general are beautiful. And that whole region is just supposed to be, the landscape is just supposed to be stunning. So I have no aspirations to be on the highest peak in the world, but yeah, that country still appeals to me for sure. And then, wow, there's just so many great places. Maybe New Zealand. I haven't made it to New Zealand yet. I've been over to Australia, spent a lot of time in Australia and never quite got the chance to pop over to New Zealand. I've also heard it's just stunning. So see if I get to any of those this next year. I'm very likely going to go to New Zealand in October. And you and I have some mutual friends in New Zealand as well. So, you know, if that fits in the itinerary, that's a possibility because I haven't been there either. I haven't been to Nepal either. So those two are also very high on my list. So Maybe we'll knock them out this year. Maybe. We'll see. It's possible. It's As, possible. I mean, I only do things last minute, so I can't really tell you until about two weeks before. Exactly right. I know. I See, I know. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll go to New Zealand in October. You'll be like, I'll tell you at the end of September if I'm going to go to New Zealand <laughs> in October. I'll let you know. I'll think about it and keep you posted. Awesome. All right, Jennifer, at this point, I want you to let people know how they can get in touch with you or how they can follow you on social media. How do you want people to be able to connect with you and figure out what you're up to? Um, well, I, I post a lot of travel pics, uh, obviously on Instagram. So my handle is just my name, Jennifer McGee, easy to find. And otherwise, if it's, you know, kind of business related, how, you know, I got into angel investing, more details about that or running a company, uh, that would just be my work email, really. Jennifer at retailinthecity.com. Retailinthecity.com, which also is a website you should check out um, because it's a really awesome website and an awesome business. And so even if you're not looking to be a customer of the business, just as an entrepreneur, you should really check out Retail in the City and just see what they've done and how they've done it because it's pretty freaking epic. Um, <laughs> and I think there's a lot of things that that different entrepreneurs can take from what you've done in their own industries and that kind of stuff. So uh, we will link all of this stuff up in the show notes so you can connect with Jennifer and get all of her recommendations and direct links to everything at themaverickshow.com. Jennifer, as always, so amazing. Thank you for being on the show again. Well, thank you, Matt, and we'll see you somewhere else in the world. All right. Good night, everybody. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. Learn how Maverick Investor Group can help you buy cash-flowing rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets, regardless of where you live. 
Schedule a free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com slash consult. Now you can buy rental properties with tenants and local property management in place so you don't have to be a landlord or a rehabber. To get your questions answered and discuss how Maverick Investor Group can help you meet your real estate investing goals, schedule your free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com forward slash consult. If you like podcasts, you will love audiobooks, and you can get your first one for free at themaverickshow.com slash audiobook. Whether you want the latest best-selling novels or books on investing, business, or travel, try your first audiobook for free at themaverickshow.com forward slash audiobook.